Hello, and welcome to Read Scholars Live. I'm your host, Mary Fleming, um, and we are here today with Dr. Deonza Thimes, who's also a Read Scholar. She is currently an emergency medicine physician. She received her medical degree from Ohio State University College of Medicine and completed her residency at Martin Luther King Jr. Drew Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Uh, we are here today to discuss COVID-19 and how that's affected her personally and professionally. So Dr. Thimes, what can you tell us about where you are now and what you're doing and uh, how COVID has affected you? I guess I'll have to. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Mary, it's good to see you. Um, well, so I am currently working in, the North Car in North Carolina. I'm a travel physician. So I live in Washington, DC, but I travel to various states to work. And honestly, in my area of North Carolina, it's not, we're not swamped with really sick or critically ill COVID patients right now, but we are finding a lot of people presenting who most likely have COVID, but you know, they're just not sick enough to require the level of care you're seeing in New York or New Orleans and you know, some of those other places. Our system hasn't been overwhelmed just yet. I've noticed a lot of patients with just extreme anxiety about it. So they come in and, you know, like literally having full-blown anxiety attacks. We've also noticed that our volumes are down a lot, honestly. It's, it's really interesting because other diseases don't stop. So you have to wonder, where are they? Where are the heart attacks? Where are the strokes? Where's the appendicitis? Where are those things? I can understand, you know, some of the trauma not being as high because people aren't driving, they aren't visiting with people, but it's, it is concerning to a lot of us that people are so fearful of COVID and catching COVID that they are staying home with potentially deadly disease processes occurring. Well, we talked a, a little bit about that earlier on, a, on another podcast about um, making sure one, the patients who do come in that they're not so focused on COVID that we're missing the other things to, you know, and, and sending them home prematurely. But two, um, you know, what, what are what are these people doing who are staying at home? You know, do you are they accessing healthcare through another way? Are they going to urgent care centers closer to home? Are they trying to triage themselves with telemedicine, or are they, you know, just at home suffering? I don't, I don't I don't know if we know the answer to that. I think um, a lot of them might be at home suffering because, I mean, like I said, especially for things like heart attacks and strokes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would think if they called any healthcare medium, you know, whether it's telemedicine or a physician's office or an urgent care, that someone would say, probably need to go into the hospital if you can't move your left arm and leg. <laughs> you know? Right. You would think, you would think. Yeah. Um, it's it, it an interesting conundrum. And, you know, especially, uh, especially for our populations that are already undersourced and have decreased access. So, um, we worry about one, making sure they're getting the right information. So yes, you know, we want you to stay home when you should stay home. So you don't need to come in for reasons why you should not usually come into the emergency room, right? For a cut or scrape or a call for sneeze right. or that type of thing. But if you're having this, you know, severe symptoms as they relate to COVID-19 or, you know, like you said, you're having chest pain and <laughs> you can't move your arm, then you might want to come on in and at least call and have somebody triage you appropriately. So, um, and and you, we had, were talking earlier about um, 
what to do with the patients that you that do come in and, and you send them home. So I talked to a few people about kind of the escalation of symptoms, right? So some people come in, mild symptoms, they get sent home, they come back and they rapidly deteriorate. Um, as you mentioned, some people are coming in with symptoms or having negative tests and then, you know, going home with, you know, high suspicion that they might uh, really have COVID-19. So what, do, what are your thoughts on, you know, what do we do with that type of information? Well, I think for healthcare systems, healthcare providers and patients, you know, we all need to acknowledge and be very clear that a negative test doesn't mean you don't have COVID. And I don't feel like that's being expressed enough. We know that as healthcare you know, professionals, but I don't see that being um, explained to the general public and patients enough. It's kind of like with the new antibody test, you know, people are getting that test and they're saying, oh, I have antibodies. And again, it's, well, one, you can't, you can't infer anything about immunity based on the fact you have antibodies because we just don't know that information. Secondly, there's a possibility of cross-reactivity with other coronaviruses. So if you had symptoms consistent with coronavirus, with COVID, and you test positive for antibodies, obviously it's a higher likelihood that it's a real positive. But again, you know, there is a certain level of cross-reactivity. We just don't have a good test right now. And I don't think that's being emphasized enough you know when in the media in hospitals and clinics it's just you know and it's concerning because even when like i said with the with the current test they're using the rapid swab which is very similar to a flu swab you use the same machine the nasopharyngeal swab so when they put it up your nose it's 37 percent false negative rate that's high very high. That is high, you know? And then the, if they decide to do an oropharyngeal swab, so take it from, your, from the back of your throat, that's almost 70% false negative rate. I mean, it's astronomical. So I think it's irresponsible when we aren't giving, when we're calling patients and saying, oh, your test was negative and just leaving it there. Yeah, that, and to go back to your point about the antibody testing, I, I was so... Um, what is the word? Uh, apprehensive almost. <laughs> when we started talking about that in popular media, and I was like, we don't have enough information to say that that's going to give us um, really what we're looking for with that test. And, and so I, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But um, I'm, I'm fearful that people were going to put more um, emphasis on that, like you said, than it's really appropriate with the information that we have at the time. So um, we'll kind of see how that goes. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you, because you have had to travel for work, um, so essential travel, um, can, have you noticed anything different as far as how people are following the recommendations as you, as you travel around? Like what is access to PPE during travel? Um, is there any regional differences from, you know, DC and, and North Carolina? Um, as far as like access to PPE, as far as like the TSA and those types of individuals, I mean, they have gloves. I'm trying to remember if they wore masks last time I was in DCA. I don't think so. Mm. I don't think they did. The problem with the gloves is they never change them. So they touch everything. 
they cross contaminate. It's, I understand on one hand why they tell everyone to wear gloves, but again, there's a lack of education around this recommendation. So, you know, I don't know, it's, it's not as helpful. And it actually might be more harmful if people don't understand how to, how to use these gloves properly. And the same with masks. I can't tell you, I went for a walk yesterday. I can't tell you how many people I saw walking down the street with the mask pulled down. I saw this one guy, the mask pulled down to his chin and he's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> oh no. Well. <laughs> or even like where I go get my coffee, she has a mask on, but it's under her nose. And I'm just like, what are we doing people? What are we doing? Um, on the airplanes, they're not wearing, I haven't seen the stewardesses or stewards wearing masks, but they, and they, essentially suspended uh, service. So, right. you know, you can't get drinks. If you want something, you can ask for it, but they're not just, you know, taking the cart down the aisle like they have been. But I think, I think they did have gloves at least. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what, you know, what they're doing in between flights. You know, I take my wipes and stuff with me. So right. I'm wiping everything down, you know, blowing everybody out with the smell of bleach. <laughs> But I'm a germaphobe, and I was doing that before COVID. Well, that's good. I mean, that probably was a healthy practice um, <laughs> even before. But I, I do think, I, going back to the gloves and the mask, I, I've had the same experience of seeing people with them, you know, everywhere on their face, but covering their nose and mouth. Mm -hmm. um, also, you know, I, there's been a little bit of traction on social media, but about the men with the beards, right? So you really have on a mask and you have a full beard, it doesn't really protect <laughs> you um and so i, I mean, think people, that i mean a beard is a fomite anyway it, it just it just is a it's a nidus for bacteria and germs and anytime i say this to a man with a beard then i my beard my beard is clean i'm like <laughs> nobody's beard is clean like, no one definition sir um but yeah and then and i've noticed a lot more people wearing gloves but to your point like really how you wear gloves is you take them off, put them on for an isolated interaction and you take them off and throw them exactly. away. And then you should wash your hands. Um, mm -hmm. If you wear the same pair of gloves all day and you touch everything in your car and in your purse or your backpack and, and, and exactly. everything, it, you're, you're cross-contaminating and kind of defeating, <laughs> defeating the purpose of um, wearing any kind of personal protection. Yeah, um, I feel like it makes people think they don't have to wash their hands. Mm, yeah. And that's the one thing you should do all the time, yeah. more frequently. Um, well, and the other thing I, I've, I've been asking people during this course is, you know, this, this is such a unique circumstance um, and such an interesting, you know, time frame for our, our country and, and in the world. And so I like to ask what um, is the biggest challenge as you see it? And it could be either personally or professionally and what is the biggest opportunity? What, what can we learn from this and grow from or with this um, so that we can hopefully, you know, move out of this in a better place than we entered it? A couple of things. I mean, number one, I think this shows that the people currently running the healthcare system aren't probably, are likely not the people who should be running the healthcare system, right? You know, the administrators and MBAs, you know, Healthcare needs to be in the hands of people who actually take care of patients. Mm -hmm. We should be making the decisions. We should be making the preparations because when we aren't, you see what happens. You know, you have nurses, physicians, 
other people in the hospital because it's not just us, right? You know, that's, we're the most visible, right. the most well known, but you know, there's respiratory therapists, there's x-ray techs, there's housekeeping, there's all these people. And, you know, you have physicians and nurses being reprimanded, fired, you know, sent home in the middle of a shift because they're raising patient concern issues. That's, that's, it's, it's beyond inappropriate. It's, it's dangerous. Um, because if we aren't protected, then we become a, a, a venue, an avenue for transmission of this disease to people who come into the hospitals and see us. Right. So there's that. Um, number two, just being prepared in general, right? Like taking this lesson and realizing, because there's going to be a second wave and there might be even be a third wave. If you look at the pandemic of 1918, there were three ways and each decimated some area of this country. So there likely is going to be a second and third wave. We can't reasonably expect to have a vaccine for a year, year and a half. This isn't going anywhere. You know, they're going to lift these restrictions. It's going to come raging back most likely. And then, you know, we're going to most likely, I would think, be in some sort of cycle of, you know, lockdown, not lockdown, you know, to varying degrees over the next year or so. Um, so again, being prepared. So in the fall or late summer, when this next wave comes, we're not in the same situation. Whether that means finding somebody who can make PPE here, make medic, because it's not just PPE. We're running out of drugs, right? We need the medications, we, the antibiotics we need to give people, the medications we need to sedate people so they can stay on the ventilator and, and things of that nature. We're running out of all of that because most of, it, most of it isn't made here. Um, and I would say the last thing, which is also extremely important, is the obvious inequities in healthcare, right? The, the racial inequities in healthcare, the socioeconomic status inequities in healthcare. They're really obviously being brought to light when you look at the amount of African Americans and minorities in general that are dying from this disease. You know, yes, we tend to have more chronic medical problems, but why is that? It's not just that we live these awful unhealthy lifestyles. There's so many factors that went into that, whether it's redlining, whether it's only being able to get positions where we are front facing to society. So whether that's the bus driver, whether that's the housekeeper, whatever, you know, whatever that is, you know, not having access to certain levels of education, all of these things happen to create this situation. So I think those are three really important things we can take away from this and hopefully use this to move forward and, and be better in the future. That is the hope. Um, I'm gonna ask you one, you get an extra question. Because you're a traveler, how do you how do you see this impacting how you travel going forward, both personally and professionally? Um, you know, I I like to travel. I travel a lot personally. So this that in and of itself, I'm devastated. I'm like, how long do I have to be in this country? I want to mm -hmm. like get on a plane and go somewhere. I, I think for a while, you know, there'll be less capacity. I mean, right now, obviously, no one's flying. But when they start back up, I don't know if we'll have middle seats. You know what I mean? I think they are going to try to do a little bit more as far as spacing, um, which may or may not affect pricing of flights. Who knows? I think, you know, hopefully they'll clean things better and more frequently as far as airplanes and things of that nature. I think that it'll be a long time before travel is back to normal, whether it's professional or personal. I know, our, you know, I have a friend who's Australian and Australia has already said they're keeping their borders closed until the end of the year. 
So you can go, but it's a mandatory 14-day quarantine in a facility they put you in. Wow. Right? And so, and then there are other countries who are just not going to let anyone else in because they can't risk having their healthcare system, you know, overloaded when people get sick by, you know, people importing in disease. So I think that, I, I think we'll see, even though we might start to lift restrictions around here and even around the world, people are not going to be, I don't think countries will be as welcoming to visitors. And I think there'll be a lot of new rules and guidelines in place. They're deporting people from Hawaii. Oh my goodness. Yeah, there was a lady, cause you know, they're basically saying if you go to Hawaii, same thing. You go to Hawaii, mandatory 14 day quarantine. And if you don't have adequate accommodations for that, they put you in jail, take you before a judge and they put you on a plane and, and send you back to where you came from. Mm. Well, um, I should have, I should have ended us on a, uh, a slightly more optimistic. <laughs> able to travel we will that'll be good i mean at least you'll be able to you know get on a plane and go visit people but i just think you know we you want to be optimistic and you should be optimistic but the reality is this is going to be with us for a long time and we're going to have to be careful for a really really long time to protect ourselves and our family members and and strangers and just everybody protecting each other and I think that's that's the true key. I mean, being mindful in all of our actions moving forward and how we interact with people, our processing for cleaning as individuals, you know, is how we just clean our houses, um, but also as organizations and corporations and places that house and accommodate large groups of people. We're just are just going to have to change some of their practices so that we can at some point get back together and um, approach yeah. our new normal uh, with some type of optimism. So. But with that, I will thank you. I appreciate you joining us. Um, and I wish you luck and safe travel and all the things that you have to do for work right now. And look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. It was great talking to you. Bye, Mary.